The sports world has been greening itself for most of the century, but despite these efforts, most fans have no idea. That changes now. Welcome to Green Sports Pod. Hosted by Lou Blaustein, Green Sports Pod highlights the successes, challenges, and opportunities to green the games we love to watch and play, and give you the chance to hear from the athletes who are taking positive environmental actions. Learn more and subscribe to the show today at greensportsblog.com. Welcome to Green Sports Pod. I'm your host, Lou Blaustein, and today we are very fortunate to be talking with Celine Mulrain who is a sustainability consultant in sport and development. And that has a global feel to it. And her work is global in nature. And Celine has lived in many places on the globe. Today, we find her in the eternal city of Rome. Our focus is going to be on the very global 17 sustainable development goals, as that is Celine's work focus, and what the score is, where climate and environment figures into it, and where sports figures into it. So with that said, welcome Celine to Green Sports Pod. Thank you, Lou. It's great to be here, especially because we've scheduled this many times. So it's good to finally be able to do this. Yes. And another quality that Celine has is persistence. I salute that. <laughs> so Celine, before we get into kind of where we are in the SDGs as we are at halftime in terms of when we need to reach these goals, which most people don't know, we'll get to that. If you could just tell our listeners how you got into this work and what inspired you and what you're doing. It was a interesting journey getting here. I'd like to call myself a generalist because I have taken on a wide variety of different roles and projects. As you said, I've lived in a lot of different places and really that has led me to this very specific place of being a consultant and working in sports on sustainability and also on the SDGs. I started working on the SDGs actually in 2016. So I was basically put in touch with this organization, Project Everyone, that I'm now working as a consultant with through a colleague of mine, actually a manager of mine at a previous job, who told me that they were looking for interns and put me in touch with them. And that was my first introduction to the world of sustainability and sustainable development. I kind of haven't looked back since. I know we'll touch on this a little bit more shortly, but really the kind of intersectional nature of all of these issues like climate change, like gender equality, poverty, the fact that looking at each one of them in a silo is actually detrimental. They all impact one another in a multitude of different ways, if only because we live in such a interconnected worlds. That really appealed to me, the fact that I didn't have to choose a specific focus and I could work on all of these different areas of social, environmental and economic development that really interests me. I left Project Everyone to pursue a master's in sustainability and sustainable policy making. When I graduated from my master's, I had the opportunity to work for a 
sustainable sports startup called Maikai, which was my foray into the sports sector. I had never really considered working sports before, even though I'm a sports fan. I love watching sports, but I had never really thought that I would ever work in sports. Or the sports connection to these development goals. Exactly. I came at it from purely a sustainable development perspective and how to apply the SDGs to a sports environment and look at it from a sports lens. But that really opened up my eyes to the potential that sports has, not only to influence people, especially through athletes who, as you and I know very well, have an incredible influence and power and are really inspiring people. Most influential humans on the planet. And that's not me talking, that's data. The stats are there to prove it. Also, because of the impact that sport has on so many different sectors and so many aspects of life, how influential as an industry sports can be in terms of influencing these issues, not just climate, which obviously, as we both know, sports has a huge environmental impact, unfortunately, a negative one, but also can impact things like sustainable production of clothing for sports gear and travel and industry and equal pay, all of these things that are at the heart of the SDGs, sports can have an incredible impact on. So that was a moment for me where I realized, okay, this is actually a very interesting space and I want to be in this space. So I've been working now with you through Eco Athletes, I've been working with an incredible organization called Athletes of the World as well. On the side, also continue to work more broadly on development, on sustainable development goals projects. And that's kind of where I'm at today. We're glad to be talking with you today because we are at or around at halftime as it relates to the achievement of the sustainable development goals, or as commonly known, the 17 SDGs, of which climate action, I know, is 13. There's eradication of poverty. We don't have to list all 17, but it's basically so many of the problem or challenges that we face as humans are in these sustainable development goals. And I think that even in the green sports world, we talk about the SDGs, the SDGs, the SDGs. But I don't think most people, even in our corner of the world, realize that, well, the UN, who set these up, set a timetable for them to be achieved. If you could just tell us what the timetable is and your sense of where we are in general, and then we'll get back to sports role on the other side. Exactly as you said, the SDGs are a set of 17 goals. They were signed in 2015 with an objective of being achieved by 2030. So 15 years to basically solve all of the world's problems, which is a pretty lofty task. But why not go big? And especially when you're trying to know poverty. That's number one, good health and well-being. Number three, quality education, four, gender equality, five, all the way to 
Climate Action 13 and beyond? Something that I've already touched on is even though on a national level, and I think something that's important is, yes, they are UN goals, but actually every UN member state, so pretty much every country in the world has signed up to these goals. So there is really an international responsibility to make sure that they are achieved. On a national level, while a government might have its own objectives from a policy perspective, the beauty of the SDGs is that they are apolitical because they're things that every state, every nation, and every individual should want and strive for because they are things that will have an impact and profound repercussions on all of us. If poverty, as you mentioned, or hunger or poor health exists around the world, then that's going to have huge impacts on the economy. And if your only objective is to grow your economy on a national level, well, you can't do that if every citizen is sick or isn't getting the proper education. So these are really basic human metrics that we should all aspire to that will lead us to having a more sustainable world. We are at the halfway point. It's seven and a half years exactly. We are not in a good position, unfortunately. Only about 15% of the goals are on track, which isn't positive. Which are the ones that are on track, just to give the listeners a sense of some hope? This is where it gets complicated. And who's keeping score, by the way? Because I'm sitting here in New Jersey, and I hear the inflation rate, the unemployment rate, GDP growth, carbon emissions, etc. I do not hear ever discussed in the mainstream media, any media, oh, this is where the U.S. is on the sustainable development goals. I'll start with who is keeping track, because like any kind of U.N. process, it's a little complicated. So at a global level, various goals and their sub-goals, which we refer to as targets, are measured by different UN institutions. For example, the World Bank measures most of the poverty metrics. The Food and Agricultural Organization measures food and agricultural and hunger targets. Gender equality is UN women. So they're the ones who are gathering the global and sometimes national data. Then at a national level, there's every summer a kind of review process where states have to submit national contributions to show where they're at on each of the goals and their targets. The problem with that is that they're voluntary contributions. Each state kind of decides how to measure them themselves. So the goals have been signed by countries, but they're not law. It's not legislation that is enshrined in a state's legal system. So it does have to be voluntary. And so some countries are better at measuring and keeping track and others are not so much. And sometimes it's not even down to a lack of will. It's really just that they don't have the capacity to measure so many different indicators and targets. The UN institutions luckily do a really good job of measuring all of this for us. They produce reports on a semi-annual basis Because we were at the halfway mark in 2023, 
all of these institutions produce reports. So we have like a really good picture actually towards the end of last year of where we are on all of these goals, which does allow us to say only 15% of them are on track. And which are those where we are doing better or less bad, depending on whether you're a glass half full or half empty person? It's hard because it's really measured at the level of the targets specifically. So there are very specific ones like on diseases like HIV and vaccine research where we're doing really well and where rates on these diseases have gone down. Child mortality and maternal mortality have gone down a lot. Overall, I would say that probably our health indicators are doing the best. And obviously COVID has in a way accelerated that because there is now even more cooperation on a global level in medical research and communication and sharing of information. COVID may have slowed this, but I had read that the world was doing better on extreme poverty over time. That's an interesting one because before COVID, we were. And the first four years of the SDGs being signed, so from 2015 to 2019, extreme poverty was on a very steady downward trajectory. And then COVID came along, which brought those rates massively back up. And now what we're facing is not just COVID, but there's obviously conflicts happening all around the world, plus climate change increasing, which is just making precarity essentially much more... Makes everything worse. Makes everything worse. And people are being affected by what we're calling the polycrisis. So kind of the convergence of those three crises, people are being affected all around the world. There is cost of living crises emerging everywhere where everything is becoming more expensive. So it does also show that some of the progress that we've made is sometimes very fragile, where seems to be on a downward trajectory or on an upward trajectory, depending on what you're measuring. And actually, at the slightest crisis or global emergency that happens, everything is sidetracked and goes backwards. How are we doing on number seven, which is affordable and clean energy. I know COVID had an impact in terms of inflation overall and inflation on non-clean energy, i.e., for example, gasoline. But I also know that deployment of solar and wind and other renewable technologies has skyrocketed over the last decade and a half. So on a macro level, How are we doing? So in terms of renewable energy, we're doing actually very well. And we have the war in Ukraine to thank for that. Oddly enough. Yeah, oddly enough. And sadly. Yes, of course, not to downplay the tragedy of the war, but it did, I think, show a lot of countries how fragile actually fossil fuels are as an energy source and accelerated the process for many countries to renewable energies. So I think we're now globally at 30% of energy consumption, which comes from renewable sources, which is pretty good. I mean, ideally it would be 100%, but that's still something pretty great. So there's some progress as we head into the locker room, the halftime locker room team talk. Hey, 
you guys in renewable energy, keep doing what you're doing, just pick up the pace. Absolutely. And I think the one thing that's really promising in this area as well is that the infrastructure, when we look at renewable energy, is just becoming cheaper and cheaper. And so it will make it more accessible for more people, including average citizens and also people in countries that potentially didn't have the funding to deploy this kind of infrastructure before. So because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the necessity of Europe and other areas close by to develop their renewable sources faster so that they wouldn't be as dependent on Russian gas, that accelerated the progress at a huge cost. Hopefully that continues. And I expect that it will. Now, nuclear is not renewable per se. However, it is clean. It's not part of the SDGs, but it is a clean energy source. And there is a huge discussion in countries. I mean, I'm French and in France, it's a very fresh conversation right now. It's one that has obviously been very topical for decades, but there is kind of a renewed conversation around nuclear and the need to potentially shut down, obviously, old and aging plants, but building new ones to replace them, actually, rather than shutting down and reducing the amount of energy that comes from nuclear. A friend of mine who works in green energy has told me that there is also a lot of conversation in Italy around whether or not to build nuclear plants. Especially small nuclear, which is seen as being safer, more secure, and also the cost is not nearly as prohibitive. Now let's move to number 13, climate action. I have a feeling the scoreboard is not too kind to us. It really isn't. So on 13, there are very few targets that are on track. And actually, the interesting thing about the goals is the way when they were set up, climate action specifically is really around that goal. So goal 13, it's really around national legislations and how well countries are doing compared to the Paris Agreement. Where we've kind of progressed in the climate space since then is really acknowledging that you can't talk about climate action without biodiversity protection and conservation. And also things like, I don't know, climate injustice. So poverty, inequality, the impacts fall more heavily on women, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Climate action specifically, we aren't doing great, but I prefer to look at other goals, which are specifically goals 14 and 15, which are um, purport to water ecosystems and land ecosystems. Because I think that's where we can see how we are doing and where we can see the impact of climate change. Ultimately, they tackle things like water pollution, desertification, deforestation, things that we know have not only impacts on climate change, but also are impacted by climate change. Unfortunately, things are not great in these areas. So carbon levels, of course, are increasing. We're still on a track to 
go far above the 1.5 degrees, which have been agreed in the Paris Agreement. It could take, for example, 25 more years to halt deforestation. So it's not even talking about how much we need to restore and conserve. So that's in a whole nother ball game, literally, because the SDG game is 2030. That's for those of you keeping score at home, six years from now, not 25. To go back actually to the energy targets, something as simple as 2 billion people could still be using polluting fuels to cook with in 2030. And so these are like really basic things where actually, if we don't provide people with decent living conditions and the clean energies that they need, they're going to continue to pollute. And it's not to put the blame on these communities whatsoever, but that's just the way that things are. And so this is just an example of how interconnected these goals are, where you can't just look at reducing carbon emissions. Action needs to be taken on so many other levels from reducing food waste to reducing plastic pollution to stopping animal trafficking. All of these things are deeply intertwined. Absolutely. And I'm looking right now, you're talking 14 and 15, life below water and life on land, respectively. But where my eyes are going are three, good health and well-being, and 16, peace, justice, and strong institutions. And I believe Climate as a public health issue is so under commented on and is so crucial. And as you mentioned earlier, in terms of the conflicts we're seeing now post COVID, climate is impacting things like mass migration, which leads to conflict. There is a peer reviewed study that shows that the Syrian tragedy that led to ISIS and the awful depravity that ensued was in significant part caused by the massive drought in Syria that led to farmers not being able to farm. And so people moved from the rural areas into the already crowded, already fractious cities like Damascus and Aleppo. And that just intensified the problems. And then there was the conflict that ensued, and then the mass migration from Syria, Iraq, etc., into Southern Europe and then into Central Europe and the destabilization that occurred in some states. And now the mass migration that we're seeing and is a huge political issue here from South to North, South and Central America towards the U.S. Southern border is also in part, a significant part, not the only part by any means, climate is impacting that as well. It's something that is not being looked at enough. As soon as you start digging a little deeper in communities and what is happening at a very local level, you start to see how much climate is impacting people at every level. As you touched on last year, I was doing some work for an NGO based in Cameroon and was doing research specifically on gender equality. But as I started doing research on the kind of civil conflicts that are happening in the country, it emerged that actually the conflicts happening in the northern part of the country were climate related. 
because there is a huge lake which is shared by Cameroon and its neighboring countries in the north, that lake is almost completely dried up. And so as it dries up, people migrate and move. And when they move to a country that is already under a significant amount of stress, of course, it is going to increase precarity because people are fighting for the same resources, which are already scarce. And it just creates even more conflict, even more precarity, which reinforces the urgency of these issues. Because if we don't take action today, I mean, yesterday, 10 years ago, we should have. But really, it's about right now, because the more we wait, the longer we take to actually do something significant, the greater these impacts will be. And they will happen regardless. But the more we do today, the more we can reduce those impacts for the future. So this is a really good pivot point to the impact of sports, because how do we get to use the Olympic motto, faster, higher, stronger, on climate action and the other SDGs? But let's just say climate action, because as you said, it touches on so many of these other ones. How do we get that? And I have a feeling, at least from my point of view, I think sports and athletes have a part to play. What do you think? First of all, that's the million dollar question. Trillion dollar question. (laughs) Everyone certainly working in this space wishes there was like a really easy, simple solution and there isn't. That's the human condition. We fight in all of this. Exactly. It is a really complex issue because sport affects so many different aspects of the environment and has such a complex impact on climate change. Yes, there is a huge carbon footprint, of course, in sports, but it's not just about carbon emissions. It's also food waste, it's production, it's irrigation, it's travel, but on a more simple level, it's about how we kind of localize sport. I think you're 100% right. I think for me, the solution is athletes. Athletes are just these superpowers when it comes to climate change, especially because they use the environment and they use nature. They depend on nature for their profession to be able to do what they do. And so I think most athletes are acutely aware of the need to protect the environment and to take climate action. A lot of the athletes I've met are extremely engaged on this topic and they really are trying to find ways to minimize their impact. I look at it on two fronts and listeners to the pod know I frame it as like green sports 1.0, greening the games, lowering our carbon footprint of sport and also lowering the biodiversity loss, the plastic pollution, reducing water pollution, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is certainly important, very important. But to me, sports as an industry contributor of greenhouse gases overall is tiny relative to apparel, transportation, construction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The opportunity for sports is the social capital that sports has and the fans that sports have, which is half the world or more are sports fans. And 
athletes can corral or harness them for good causes. And that has been the case. Jackie Robinson in baseball. So that would be reduced inequality, right? As in racial inequality, number 10. He broke the color barrier in baseball in 1947. Muhammad Ali fought for number 16, peace, justice, and strong institutions. Number five, Billie Jean King, gender equality. And number 10, I mean, Billie Jean King is on like a lot of them. That's where we got to go with this. As we're recording this, I don't know if you know this, Celine. I don't know if you've heard of Caroline Gleit. No. She was a snowboarder, I believe, Olympic snowboarder. And she is now running for U.S. Senate in Utah as a Democrat. Long, long, long shot in Utah. However, I actually think driving public opinion is where sport and athletes can make and the demand for public action at a mass level on all the SDGs, including number 13, climate action, is where the opportunity is. What are your thoughts? I completely agree with everything you said. You've said it so well. There is a long history of sports and advocacy going hand in hand and advocacy, activism, whatever you want to call it. But athletes, they have this power and this advantage that no one else really has in the world where they have these platforms where people adore them because they are fantastic at what they do, because they provide entertainment and they provide social bonds and are representatives and leaders of communities of global fans now. And these fans actually listen to them. They trust them in a way that they don't trust other people. They don't trust scientists, academics. They don't trust politicians, business leaders in the same way that they trust. Nor corporations. Especially corporations. And that is a really incredible currency that needs to be tapped into. We're now at a point where athletes are also not being reprimanded for having causes that they are passionate about. That's true in some instances. Obviously, we're still seeing this happen now, currently. But when it comes to climate change, actually, I think a lot of clubs and sports organizations are actually encouraging athletes to be vocal about climate change because it is, I don't want to say trendy, but it kind of is because it gives them a good image and it shows that actually they are by proxy doing good. And they'll get some pushback because that's the way we are right now. That's where we are. But these athletes, for the most part, they're getting pushback in the games they play. So they're used to it. Some don't want pushback outside of the thing they're most talented at, i.e. playing their sport. But there are some that do. Thankfully, they don't care or they're like, bring it on. And I think as it relates to climate action, when you bring that into the climate justice conversation, when you bring that into the biodiversity conversation, as you so eloquently brought up earlier, who doesn't want a healthy environment? Who doesn't want a thriving planet with abundant nature that provides us with a 
chance to live a healthy, productive life. If you put it in that term, and we're working with athletes to do that, and other groups are, and then I think to your point, you've got something. Yes, there are climate deniers, but I think even they don't want the planet to explode and burn and human existence to cease. So I think there is a way to tap into that desire for, at a very basic level, human survival. Athletes can reach those people in ways that campaigners, climate scientists, politicians can't. The most important thing now is actually equipping athletes with the tools to feel empowered and confident to speak out on these issues and the issues that they care about, but especially ones like climate action, which really require a huge movement. We need to all band together and do something about this. We're in the halftime locker room. We are. In fact, we need to wrap this up. And thank you so much for being part of this. So let's imagine we're the announcers of the SDG game. We're at halftime. And I'm the play-by-play person, and you're the color commentator. So I'm going to ask, Celine, as the world comes out for the second half of the game, what do you see as our chance to get a good result? We've really put a good effort in the first half, but ultimately there have been some challenges that have come our way that have really brought the team down. But I think the best thing that we can do now is just to remember that we are a team and that when we work together, we can achieve great things. And so we need to all band together and play like it is the last game of our life. I'm ready to go out there, Celine. And actually, to me, I think the opponents are disinformation, misinformation, cynicism from organizations and entities and individuals who don't want to change because change is not comfortable for them. And our team, the SDG win team, that opposition is strong. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. And that's why we don't have better field position going into the second half, better score. However, they can be defeated. And your point, let's band together and win. So go SDG team, go climate action team. And Celine, thank you so much for your insights today. And to you listeners, we will be back with another Green Sports Pod in the coming weeks. Thank you for listening and see you again next time on Green Sports Pod. You've been listening to Green Sports Pod, hosted by Lou Blaustein. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And head on over to greensportsblog.com, the source for news and commentary at the intersection of green and sports. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Green Sports Pod.